Yes, the hydration thing is a big deal here, isn't it? Yeah, that's another thing. I may actually, uh, I've just got some fisherman's friends here in case I have a bit of a cough. So right. try not to slobber on them. Are those really for fishermen? Well, that, that's what they say, but they'll sell them to anybody. So <laughs> it's not like I had to, it's not like I had to show them a fish head or anything. Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. During Consim World Expo, I caught Brian Train for another round of interesting discussions. He even shared his five or six favorite insurgency games, actually seven after I gave him a friendly reminder. Brian also discusses the development and testing of the Pantzuka at Burning Man. My discussions with Brian will be covered over two podcasts. This podcast is composed of two parts. Part one is a discussion of my experience at Gen Con and the insurgency in Indianapolis. Part two is an interview with insurgency expert, game designer, and Pantzuka inventor, Brian Train. This will be part one of that interview. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Two thousand nineteen was the best Gen Con I've ever attended. I've attended two Gen Cons, but it was a great Gen Con. Along with a handful of friends, including Grant and Alexander from Players Aid, we organized, on pretty short notice, an insurgency for wargamers. It was a big success. We estimate between fifty and seventy people were there during the day on Thursday at Gen Con. There was so much going on, it's hard for me to recount in a complete fashion the games that were played, but there was lots of good wargaming going on across the tables. We played in the library, which was nice enough to give us some space, there on the floor of Lucas Oil Stadium. It's where, of course, the Indianapolis Colts play, and most importantly, the home of the Big Ten Championship. The great Roger McGowan and his C3I Studios created an insurgency tee design, we also had door prizes and support from Decision Games, GMT Games, Blue Panther, Revolution Games, Pacific Rim Publishing. Planning for next year starts now. Lots of interesting conversations are going on related to how to make it bigger and better for wargamers. My conclusion is there are a lot of wargamers who'd like to play wargames at Gen Con. And God knows that's the history of the convention. There are already several game companies wargame companies in specific that have booths at Gen Con. Of course, Academy Games was there. I spent some time with the hardest working man in wargames, Uwe Eichert, and we had a great discussion about his new series, Conflict of Heroes, actually the third edition of Conflict of Heroes, some of the other things that they're doing. It's kind of funny, I stopped by the booth probably four times during the four days I was there, and every time Uwe was hard at it, teaching a game or telling somebody about the history of something. It was uh, amazing to watch. I also stopped by Decision Games, near and dear to my heart, of course, and they had already sold out of Campaigns of 1777, Strategy and Tactics number 316, 
Looks like that one's going to be hard to get soon. But they each do a lot of demos during the day. There are other companies that have war games or sell war games that do demos as well. It would be wonderful if we could pull all of this together in the course of uh, four days at Gen Con, maybe create a war room. Who knows? The other side of it is that I don't want to spend my entire Gen Con administering this convention within a convention. So that's the trade-off for me. The other war game boss that I met there was Gene Billingsley. I ran into him on Saturday morning and spoke to him about future plans. And Gene hasn't committed to any plans in the future, but he was scoping out the territory. And it will be interesting to see how he gets involved. But I think there's only upside for war gamers at Gen Con. Whether it's another day of insurgency or some sort of creation of something that allows us to gather and play over the course of three or four days, I think there's upside and great opportunity for those of us that like to play conflict simulations. So more to follow on that. If you have any questions or you'd like to get in touch and get on our list for notification next year, if you're a war gamer that will be at Gen Con or even considering it, please send me an email or a IM or whatever form of communication, a letter. A uh, nicely written letter is always appreciated. Excellent pensmanship is, uh, is undervalued these days. So I look forward to uh, hearing from you if you expect to be around. Otherwise, we'll begin work in earnest on Gen Con 2020, and the insurgency will grow. Brian Train is a prolific game designer and author of articles on history. I share a more extensive resume for Brian in Herald on Games podcast number 12. I enjoy seeing Brian every year at ConSim World Expo in Tempe, Arizona. It's one of the highlights for me. We will start this interview with a question on the myriad of games he brought with him to ConSim World Expo to show publishers and players alike. Well, <clears throat> this year, uh, I can't remember how many times I've been to Consum World. The first time I came was 2005, which is 14 years ago, and I have come most years since then, not every year. So I would guess this is probably the 10th time, 10th, 11th time I've come here. And some years I bring more stuff than others. This year I brought uh, four games with me. Uh, one is a GMT coin system game called China's War, and that's uh, for four players. And uh, that one is pretty much finished. Uh, I showed it to Gene Billingsley, and he was very pleased with it. So uh, I think before very long, uh, it's going to be on P500. And uh, you know, it'll probably be out, I would say, in a, a couple of years, uh, the pipeline uh, status for GMT projects now is, uh, I think, about a year between, uh, you know, the final pulling of the trigger and uh, it actually landing in California. And uh, that was the first one. The second one is a game called Strongman, and it's a card game 
on uh, power politics and a power vacuum in a uh, mythical uh, Latin American modern state. Uh, I designed the original version of this game uh, in 2013. It was a at the time it was a thinly disguised post Chavez Venezuela. but that was in 2013 when Chavez wasn't post yet. But I knew, uh, you know, the day was coming. So um, I wanted to set that up. Um, I may have mentioned this, you know, uh, before, uh, but last year while I was here, I showed this game to Gene, and he had some suggestions on how to deepen and uh, bring some more depth and variety into the personalities and characters in the game to make people a little bit more personally involved and to make uh, generating a narrative in the game a little bit easier. Uh, But the basic hook of the game is uh, a tension. It's a tension between competition between the players to build up uh, personal power bases of, of organizations uh, and to interfere with each other's personal power bases. Uh, uh, so there's the competition aspect there, but there's also a cooperation aspect because as everybody is playing the game, the card deck is burping out these social and economic crises uh, at them. And if people don't act together uh, to resolve these crises, there are penalties involved that make it tougher on everybody. And so uh, they they have to balance you know, each player has to balance each turn between how much they want to cooperate with other people and how much they want to devote to competition. And uh, just, I, I think that's that's an interesting sort of balance for that sort of thing. And it's a card game, uh, so it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, and I have been working on it. As I said, I originally designed this in 2013, but over the last year, I've been working on it with David Tertzi, who is the Euro game designer that I worked with uh, for uh, Knights of Fire, which is the Budapest game that we talked about uh, the last time we sat down to chat. Um, that game is supposed to be out probably next month, finally. Uh, we had uh, a nice Kickstarter at the beginning of 2018 uh, and got enough extra funding to fund um, sets of miniatures and that kind of thing. It was a very nice Kickstarter, as I recall. What was the funding level? Uh, it ended up at over $75,000, which was triple uh, the amount that they needed to produce uh, the game. I, I don't know what the production run uh, ultimately it will be like. Uh, I can't think that there would be a really large production run. So if you're at all interested in this topic, um, you know, please um, do your best to go out and get a copy with or without the miniatures, um, which were interesting. You know, it's a little sculpts of, uh, of a tank and uh, of a, uh, a sniper and a Soviet infantryman. <clears throat> but it's really interesting because a Soviet infantryman looks for all the world like Yul Brynner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, probably you don't remember, uh, uh, but a long time ago in the late 50s, there was a movie called um, uh, The Long Journey, I think it was, and it was about uh, uh, people escaping Hungary in the middle of the Hungarian Revolution in the midst of the Soviet crackdown, and Yul Brynner played this Soviet colonel 
like a, like an NKVD colonel or something like that, uh, who was trying to capture, you know, these emigres who were being hustled out of the country by some British journalists. So anyway, this is <laughs> scowling blonde, or not blonde, I, I don't know, he might have been blonde once, but anyway, he's bald now. So this obviously bald, <laughs> scowling Soviet infantryman, you know, looks just like Yul Brynner is, you know, parading all over the, uh, the, the map board in this game. I was going to say Yul Brynner, we don't know what color his hair was, right? I mean, because he, he was always, it, it was, while he was in the movies, always clean shaven on the head. I really don't know what color of hair he might have had once. It's, uh, it's anybody's guess. Right. Uh, so anyway. Um, and the subject of great speculation, I'm sure. Yep, that's right. Well, uh, actually, a subject of greater speculation from some of your listeners might be who the hell was Yul Brynner to start yes, with. Yes, yes. Uh, he was from a long time ago. I mean, people were still making jokes about him in the 70s, but that's about as long as So the biggest movie he was probably in was The King and I. Yes, a musical. Right, at least generally it was a musical and he played the King of Siam or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but he was in a lot of things. Oh, another movie that it's more likely your listeners might remember him from is the original Westworld. He right. was a killer cowboy robot. He was the cowboy robot. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So that And it was the Westworld before the HBO Westworld, yeah, right? Yeah, it was the standalone movie or future, uh, yes. Yeah. Which is um, a pretty good movie in its own right. You know, it's sort of, it's of its time. Um, but I found it a lot more interesting. I tried to watch some of the HBO series and it just, nah, it uh, just didn't hold my attention. Right. What about Game of Thrones? Did you watch Game of Thrones? <laughs> Uh, I don't know what people are going to think of it, but I'm I'm afraid I'm one of those people who just has to say that I never watched a, an episode. I never read any George R. R. Martin beyond a few uh, sort of science fiction and horror stories that he wrote. Uh, back when he was getting his start, he used to publish short stories in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And um, I read some of his stuff then, uh, and it was interesting. But sort of medieval fantasy, it's just has never really held my attention. Um, I, I read The Hobbit, I read The Lord of the Rings, and I kind of leveled off with that. So, um, well, you missed you missed a hell of a series, and but it's always going to be available to you, right? When you when you change your mind, you'll be able to go back to it. And well, it's certainly a pop culture phenomenon. And and my wife, who's uh, a professor of film studies and a real student of, of popular culture, feels a compulsion to, you know, when there's a big fuss about these kinds of things, to, to watch them. Um, uh, well, a few years ago, when uh, Breaking Bad was drawing to its conclusion, she thought, well, people are making such a fuss about this, there must be something in this, you know, that's interesting from a popular culture point of view. You know, certainly um, it, it makes a, a, a really uh, set of cogent comments on class in the United States, uh, about public policy, about health, about law enforcement, and about personal morality. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, the Walter Winchell character, how he changes throughout, uh, throughout the series. So she thought, oh, I better watch a couple episodes of this <laughs> so she, she spent she ended up spending the most of the rest of the week sitting in front of the tv you know running dvd after dvd of, of breaking bad so that was like the ultimate binge um of, of breaking bad um so she did sit down and watch the last episode of game of thrones but because she had no background on who any of these characters were it was meaningless you know, and it was, unemotional as it was for the rest well of it was just kind of loud the whole thing was just kind of loud and confusing. Right. Yeah. Well, for those of us that have loved it all along, it was loud and confusing. There was a lot crunched into a very short six episodes. 
Right. Uh, so, but look, I, we're we're uh, we're I'm digressing. I forced you to to talk about Yul Brynner. Oh, not at all. I mean, you know, I mean, Game of Thrones, as I said, it's 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 also an interesting pop cultural phenomenon. Obviously, the themes resonated with people, and they found modern you know, or personal allegories in it. And, you know, I'm, I don't mind letting people enjoy things. You know, they can have their dragon show or their sports ball or whatever. Yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> cigarettes or yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Yes, they let me have my war games. So. Yes. Well, they do for now. We'll see how that plays yeah. out in the long term. That was a really clumsy segue, wasn't it? Trying to drag this <laughs> sputtering back onto the track. <laughs> well, I tried it. Yeah, between the two of us, we'll have to just manhandle it back onto yeah. the track. So, so the post-Chavez Venezuela game. Tell me a little bit about how, where, where did this come from in your head? What were you thinking about? And, and is, it, is it now what you imagined when you first started? And what's the transition between those two? Well, um, as I said, it, it, I started work on this back in 2013. And I was interested in a game on power politics. Uh, I and I was interested in. I've always been interested in games about coups. You know, coup d'état, this and that. And um, the situation in uh, Venezuela was was developing in a really interesting way. You know, Chavez wasn't dead yet, uh, but he had already been. You know. Um, there had been like at least one or two coups against him. Um, things were starting to um, liven up, really, in uh, Venezuela as the price of oil tanked. And, uh, and inflation increased. And an inflation increased. I mean, unfortunately, Venezuela has only one commodity that's that the rest of the world wants. And when the price for that commodity tanks, you're going to be in serious trouble. And they've just compounded it ever since by making a series of very, very bad decisions. Um, but uh, as usual, I think they're decisions made with good intentions in that they want to guard uh, some of the gains that poorer people uh, made under uh, Chavez and uh, Chavismo. Um, one thing that isn't mentioned very much in uh, analysis that we read in Canada and the United States about the Venezuela situation under Chavez and now under Maduro uh, is the racial character, the racism in Venezuela and how, in a sense, it's not just a war of rich against poor, but it's also rich of, of, um, of, of whites you know, people who are largely white against people who are largely black, um, you know, mixed race and, in, color, you know, yes. and, and native. Uh, so um, really, uh, that, that, that aspect isn't brought out very much. Someone that I read for a comment uh, with this kind of angle is a guy called Greg Palast, and I, P-A-L, P-A-L-A-S-T. I don't know if you are familiar with him. Uh, he's written a couple of books uh, and he's a columnist, and he's uh, certainly an investigative journalist who rattles a lot of bars on a lot of cages. Um, he can be found on the internet. Um, uh, let's see, there's a site called truthout.com, and I think you can see his stuff appearing there. Uh, but anyway, just if anybody's interested, Google Greg Palast, because uh, his coverage of, of, of Venezuela and a lot of other things is interesting. Certainly it's a, a, a perspective that you don't always hear you know, uh, from the, the larger media outlets. So anyway, um, I, I, I thought it was an interesting uh, situation. 
Uh, I hadn't done anything about Latin American uh, politics or society for a while uh, because I had uh, done my Shining Path game, you know, a number of years ago uh, and uh, a couple of other things, but really not much else. You know, my Tupamaro game and Shining Path and so I thought, you know, maybe I should do something about the situation in Venezuela. And uh, my main idea that I wanted to develop at the time was that uh, tension between competition and cooperation that I was talking about earlier. So that hook of the game is still there in its current form. Uh, but with David's help, uh, it, we've added a lot more um, sort of personal dimensions to the particular personalities, uh, different agendas, uh, different ways for players to uh, interfere with each other, different ways of scoring. Um, as I probably alluded to in my last podcast, David is primarily a Euro game designer, but he has played enough war games that he really understands the war game dialect, as it were. And uh, he really has a talent for suggesting different mechanisms for doing things. Uh, and you can watch him when you make a suggestion about a mechanism or he makes a suggestion. You can almost see his eyes kind of spin around in his head as he, his, his brain just goes clickety-click and kind of plays through the mechanism and sees, oh yes, well this way, if you do it this way, then people will be incentivized towards that, and then they'll be, uh, you know, moved away from this, and then I'll see this, uh, this other unintended or perhaps intended consequence, and on balance, summing up, this is a good thing for the game, or this is not a good thing for the game, this will send it down an alley. Um, so his ability to kind of think of something like that and then follow it through in his head uh, is uh, a skill um, or uh, some kind of inspiration. I, I really wish that I was able to to do it as easily as he, um, because uh, it's uh, it's very good. And my least favorite law, of course, is the law of unintended consequences, <laughs> and it's always ambushing me. Uh, so if I were a little bit, if my brain were a little bit more like David's, then maybe I wouldn't get ambushed so often. Um, so that was uh, the, um, the the card game, uh, and it is just a, a card game with a, a bunch of markers and things, so no map or anything like that. Um, I also wanted to do uh, a card game. I've only done a couple of games that uh, are all cards or primarily cards, uh, as opposed to the usual map and counter exercise. So I wanted to do something like that. And uh, it's come along okay. I need to do uh, a bunch of playtesting on it just to make sure that the little parts, you know, kind of start to mesh properly. Uh, it's a ways away from development. So that was number two. I brought two other games with me. Uh, both of them are semi-abstract games on urban insurgency. Now, um, I think last year when we were talking, we were talking about the megacities problem uh, and about the American military, you know, waking up to the problems that are posed by megacities and the challenges to their infrastructure and uh, the conflict that's going to be erupting uh, within and around and over uh, large cities. And so I've gotten more and more interested in this over the last while, and I think I must have designed probably a good five or, five or six games now on one aspect or another of uh, urban irregular warfare. This April, I went to Quantico at uh, Marine Corps University because um, 
the um, Military Operations Research Society, or MORS, was um, holding a special event on urban warfare. And they asked me, one of the working groups, the head of one, one of the working groups asked me to come and to talk about my use of my personally designing or helping to design games on urban irregular warfare and how they could uh, reflect different aspects of how they kind of expect this thing to, uh, to, to roll out. <clears throat> so I went down and I talked about, uh, I, I just had time to make a short presentation and I talked about three games that I wanted to talk about in that particular aspect. And the first one was Tupamaro, uh, a game I did, one of the first games I ever designed actually back in 1995 uh, about the Tupamaro urban guerrillas in Uruguay in 1968 to 1972. That's interesting because this was uh, an urban guerrilla movement that grew and it flourished and was smashed in the space of four years uh, all inside uh, the size, uh, one city the size of about about the size of Phoenix, Arizona. Montevideo at the time was about a million and a half people. So you had this, you know, large and uh, quite skillful for, at times um, uh, urban guerrilla movement uh, existing, moving around, causing no end of trouble, uh, you know, within one city. And it occupied the attentions of pretty much the entire uh, Uruguayan army and police force, including a number of auxiliary police forces that they created just to fight uh, against the Tupamaros. Um, in the end, uh, what sank them was they had no ability to tie in with the legitimate political movements in Uruguay at the time. Uh, the, the amount of violence that they were causing, both by their own actions and by the security forces' reaction to their actions, was alienating too many people. And in the end, the military stepped in, uh, essentially abolished the civilian government, and that was the end of democracy in Uruguay for the next 18 years. And the president of, I think it's just the past president now of, um, of Uruguay, uh, Jose Mujica, uh, was a Tupamaro fighter, and he was kept prisoner by the security forces for 13 years. And he spent a lot of his time uh, essentially lying on his back in a concrete horse trough with a, a big heavy board across the top of it. And he sp spent months on end in this little concrete trough while he was a prisoner of the security forces. Wow. So, um, and he, obviously he survived all that. Um, when democracy returned, you know, he was eventually released and he got into politics and he was elected uh, president of Uruguay. He was president of uh, Uruguay for like five years. An amazingly humble man. Uh, didn't live in the official residence. Uh, he lived on his little farm. Uh, outside, hobby farm outside of Montevideo, didn't get a car. He had a clapped out old Volkswagen that he would drive into town every day, you know, to do his work as president. And um, just a, an amazingly humble man. And he took like, I think, I don't, I don't even think he took a salary for the time that he was president. So I believe that he has now uh, been replaced by another president, but certainly a pretty remarkable figure. Uh, and, you know, kind of an ultimate irony is that you start out um, resisting, you know, the state in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the state punishes you 
you know, for so many years and you survive all that and then you come out and t- on top and you run the country for a period of time. So pretty remarkable. Anyway, uh, so that was one game that I talked about uh, just because of its unusual nature uh, as uh, a, 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 an irregular war that was fought and, and just a, a question of how involved things can be, how involved things can get inside one city. The second game I talked about was Knights of Fire. Well, first of all, Operation Whirlwind, which was the original war game, more war gamey version of uh, my game on Budapest in 1956. And I talked about the development and the changes wrought between that early small war game and Knights of Fire. Uh, which is the one that I worked on with David, that grew to uh, include, you know, a lot of different components, uh, you know, wooden blocks and, you know, miniatures and stuff like that. But at the core, you know, there were some additional mechanisms, but at the core it was an interesting uh, game about uh, a very short-lived urban conflict, uh, but where you had, you know, like three Soviet combat divisions uh, against uh, you know, a, a, a few thousand uh, very lightly armed irregulars. And then the third one I talked about was uh, about uh, a game that I was showing uh, at last year's Consum World called We Are Coming Nineveh. And this was a, a game that uh, was about the battle uh, for Mosul in 2017, uh, a battle that was uh, probably the longest and most involved sustained urban battle since World War II. Uh, It went on for months and months, and it was a battle that was conducted mostly by the Iraqi security forces against the ISIS forces that were making kind of their last stand in Mosul. And this is a game that was designed originally by two students of Rex Brynan. Uh, Rex is a professor of political science at McGill University in Montreal. Rex and I have been friends uh, for a long time. I got to know him when I was in high school, and he was taking an undergraduate degree in history at my local university. And uh, um, the university had a, a war games club. So on Sunday, you know, this is when I was in high school and I was starting to get into war games. On Sunday, I'd go into the university and uh, we would play these big micro-armor games, you know, 1-300 scale uh, micro-battles. And uh, we'd shove a bunch of uh, tables together in a classroom and throw a big green cloth over it. And Rex had the largest collection of micro-armor, so we usually played with his stuff. But Rex only collected Warsaw Pact stuff. So the battles were always Russians against Chinese. <laughs> so, but we had some big ones, and um, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but Rex graduated, moved away, and I lost contact with him for years and years afterwards. Almost thirty years after, uh, I met up with him at uh, the Connections Conference on Professional Wargaming at National Defense University in Washington D.C. and. Over all that time, Rex was still gaming, and he had grown to be a full professor uh, at uh, at McGill, who used games in his classes a lot. And as an experiment, uh, this past year, he had uh, put together a class uh, where students would design a game. And uh, they would take a subject, they would research it, and then they would work out um, a game. On uh, on the on their particular research topic, and they had to write a paper about it. But you know, uh, the game came with it, and so he got games uh, from students. Uh, one about atrocities in Darfur. Another one was uh, a game about the One Belt One Road 
uh, you know, initiative. So it's sort of a political and economics game. And uh, two of his students put together this game on uh, the battle for Mosul. And it was so good. This was their first essay into game design. They barely even played any war games before. But uh, what they did was so good and came together so well that Rex showed it to me, and Rex and I agreed to develop it with the students. And uh, it's now in the hands, or very shortly it'll be in the hands of Nuts Publishing over in France, uh, who are going to give it uh, the nice boxed game treatment. And uh, it was very, very interesting as well. So I talked about these three games, um, and more to the point uh, for what the audience wanted to know at this particular working group was how I broke down the different elements in each game and related them to each other. Um, there's a, a, a guy called Peter Perla who's uh, has written on professional war games a lot. Brilliant, brilliant guy, and has designed a few war games of his own. Um, and his... Uh, he had an acronym uh, for uh, analyzing and breaking down the components of a game. And the, the acronym is TREADS, and I have to see if I can recall the different parts. Uh, but T is time, uh, R is relationships, and you have, uh, and the relationships are talking about the EADS, uh, and the EADS is. Uh, uh, entities in the game, the actions that those entities carry carry out, uh, the um, distinct changes in the game state that the entities acting, how they change what goes on in the game. Um, and S stands for, I believe, space, space-time, something like that. Anyway, uh, it was a very interesting. Anyway, and that's how I kind of broke it down for these people. Uh, you know, each game, and more to the point, showed them the design bibliography, the kinds of uh, of um, research sources that I consulted in putting this thing together, where I went, you know, how I, in effect, triangulated a lot of information. Because um, the kind of information you need to know when you're designing a war game is not usually the same kind of information that you run across when you're reading a, a popular history book about something. Um, and uh, war gamers, uh, war game designers, they search for something uh, that I call the Benno effect. And uh, what that is, is when, say, you're, you're doing uh, research on the history of the 27th Panzer Regiment or something on the Eastern Front. So one source will tell you that, uh, you know, the, the, the 27th Panzer Regiment was in, you know, inter it was outside of Kiev on the 10th of April. Uh, and another F source will tell you, well, no, it wasn't outside of Kiev on the 10th of April. That was the 12th of April. And, uh, you know, it, and it uh, consisted of, you know, uh, tw 25 tanks or something like that. And uh, yet a third source will say, well, it was nowhere near either of those places at the time. And it didn't consist of 27 tanks. It consisted of only three tanks and a dachshund named Benno. <laughs> so <laughs> what they want, you know, so you get all these conflicting or semi-conflicting um, sources of information and you have to do a kind of triangulation, almost like an averaging out of something. And uh, But a lot of gamers uh, and, uh, well, players as well as designers, uh, they're looking for Benno. They want to see that little piece of chrome in there, uh, that little piece of really not all that relevant 
but it's that little touch of verisimilitude and uh, I suppose it's something that we look at, we look for. Uh, we look for it in a war game, we look for it in a war movie. I mean, the nerdier uh, among us will look at a movie like, I don't know, Saving Private Ryan or something like that and be really disappointed if, you know, the costumers don't get the, the Tressa colors right on the German uniforms, something right. like that. So Right, anyway. So true. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that was a, a very, very interesting week that I spent at Marine Corps University, uh, you know, with my presentation, which I've just related in unnecessary detail. I'm sorry. No, it's excellent. Uh, and uh, we ended up talking about a lot of other things. And it was apparent to me that there were not very many people there at all talking about the problem of combat uh, in cities uh, the way that I was talking about it. A lot of people were talking about, well, look, these are the problems that are faced by an American tank brigade as it heads into this large, unnamed megacity and faces a Chinese infantry division or something like that in the streets of, you know, of, of whatever. And uh, honestly, I don't think that's how it's going to be. You know, we're not going to be staging Stalingrad over and over again. Uh, and if there are going to be any large sustained urban battles, they will be like Mosul. They will be like Grozny in the 1990s. Uh, there's a famous writer on uh, counterinsurgency, uh, an advisor, a man who's really been and done. His name is David Kilcullen. He wrote a book called The Accidental Gorilla. And it was all about uh, the wars, uh, the rural, largely rural insurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, a few years after he wrote The Accidental Guerrilla, he wrote another book uh, called Out of the Mountains. And the point of that book was, well, okay, I already wrote this book about rural insurgencies, but now I'm going to tell you what's really going to happen. And he goes on and he talks about uh, the, the whole problem of, you know, increasing urbanization uh, as more and more people flood into larger and larger cities with bad infrastructure that's getting worse and worse and is buckling under the strains face that off against the fact that all of the most of these cities uh, are literal littoral cities uh, so they're at least partly waterfront and of course you have climate change so these mega cities are being washed away bit by bit not just by rising waters but by greater and greater uh, and ever more destructive events of weather and uh, even things like water supply. Uh, a year or two ago, Pretoria uh, ran out of water. And uh, I think the situation's been restored because they had, uh, the, because South Africa and the Pretorian city government had reserves of trained people and money and the ability to repair their infrastructure and get the water moving again in Pretoria. Now, that was a year or two ago. Week before last, Chennai which is the sixth largest city in India, ran out of water. And <laughs> I, I don't think that it's ever going, the situation's ever going to be restored. And so what's going to happen to the hundreds of thousands, millions of people in Chennai who no longer can get a drink of water? Um, they can leave the city, yes. Where are they going to go? And uh, they still need to drink water every day. So those are the kinds of problems that uh, are happening nowadays. Uh, they're the kind of problems that people need to plan around because they have large and profound and very lasting effects on uh, our, our thoughts about security and about development. So by and large, um, 
the conflicts I think will be uh, will be irregular conflicts. So there'll be very loose coalitions of you know essentially heavily armed street gangs facing off against security forces that sometimes might not be all that much better equipped or disciplined than their adversaries. Um, David Kilcullen goes on to point this out in two particularly illuminating chapters in uh, Out of the Mountains. One of the early chapters in the book, he's talking about the attack on Mumbai, and he talks about how the uh, fellows who did the Mumbai attack, where they trained for doing that attack, how they trained through it, uh, how they uh, trained for contingencies, uh, all their rehearsals, how they were equipped, and how they infiltrated into India through the civilian fishing fleet and found their way into Mumbai, you know, gathered at that particular hotel at that particular time, and it was fewer than 100 guys with some explosives and small arms brought a huge city, you know, to its knees for, you know, half a day, if not longer. Um, So that was one really good chapter in that book. A second one is a chapter where he talks about a place called Tivoli Gardens, which is a neighborhood in Kingston in Jamaica, capital city of Jamaica. And this is a city, uh, Tivoli Gardens was a neighborhood that was under the control of a large criminal gang. And the criminal gang had established itself more or less as a rival government, or a government that was doing a governing job at least as good as the regular city government at Kingston in providing services to its people, extracting money from them, because as we all know, one of the first acts of any government agency is to exact taxation. Uh, They were also being funded from abroad, from the Jamaican diaspora, you know, so people were sending remittances home, you know, which was another important uh, source of supply, uh, money and logistics for uh, for this group. Anyway, the uh, Jamaican government decided one day it had had enough of having a big spot of ungoverned territory, from their point of view, it was ungoverned, uh, in the middle of Kingston. So they they whistled up half of the Jamaican Defense Force, which is like a battalion of light infantry, plus every policeman in Jamaica, in Kingston they could find. And they moved in on Tivoli Gardens, which was heavily barricaded and, you know, physically was defended. Uh, now, there was, like, little violence because the expected happened. You know, the criminals, they just scattered. And uh, the city, and Tivoli Gardens was occupied. It was garrisoned by uh, the the troops and by the police for a week or two afterwards. And, you know, they had to go back to what they were doing before. And as soon as they had done that, the gangsters moved back in. And things were just like they were, you know, a month or two before. That, I think, is going to be more of the pattern of the kind of conflicts we're going to see um, in uh, in cities, uh, large and small, in the future. So I had been um, getting interested in, um, in in designing some games that attacked, you know, different aspects of this problem. One of them is uh, the district commander system that I was tell- talking about last podcast and the Maracas module, which is uh, a module for that basic system that takes place in this imaginary megacity. So that's that particular system of uh, diceless this and that you know, that looks after uh, urban irregular warfare. But the two games that I brought with me are two semi-abstract exercises uh, in um, uh, different aspects of urban insurgency. One is called Squares of the City. I stole that title from a pretty good book uh, by uh, a, a British science fiction writer named John Brunner. 
and he wrote that in I think about 1970 or so and uh, the book takes place inside this um, planned centrally planned artificially constructed Latin American large city uh, you know uh, you remember Brasilia you know, uh, and I don't know what Brasilia looks like nowadays, but, you know, back in the early 70s, that was supposed to be the future of cities, you know, uh, an exquisitely planned um, and modeled city that would be a model of how people would live. Anyway, the main character in the book is, uh, he's an analyst of, I think he's like an economics analyst or or economic consultant or something, or urban planning consultant. And he's called in to go to the city because the city is full of people, but there's these odd pockets of of lawlessness have been growing in the city where the government doesn't seem to have any kind of control and people are settling and they're kind of beyond the reach of the city government and traffic patterns and the usual flow of of city services are being disrupted by these strange little pockets that are appearing in there in this wonderfully minutely planned metropolis and so he's trying to figure out what's going on and his main adversary in the book is uh if I recall correctly, it's been a long time since I read the book, is some kind of land developer. And it develops that the man, the, the adversary is actually playing a chess game against this guy. And he's maneuvering people in the game. You know, he's maneuvering people from place to place in the city, using them to attack him one way or the other. And it's a model of a chess game. And John Brunner actually uh, shows you the chess game at the end of the book in the proper chess notation. So from that crazy-sounding book about traffic patterns being disrupted <laughs> in this fictional city, anyway, <clears throat> I thought that you know Squares of the City would make a good title for this. And the game is played on a, a, a blank square grid. And the square grid represents the civilian population of the city, you know, great undifferentiated mass of, of um, you know, generally uninvolved people. And um, there are two players. There's the, um, call them the rebels, and then the other side is uh, is the, the government. And the rebels have, uh, it's, it's largely a hidden information game. And uh, the rebels have all these different counters uh, that move around in kind of blobs on the map, transfer themselves sliding around doing this and that. And whatever is in that particular counter is on an off-map display. So it could be nothing, uh, in which case it's a dummy, uh, or it could be an insurgent, or it could be a node, which is like a, a headquarters insurgent, someone who you know gives the orders. So there's that, uh, and uh, they're moving around in the gra- in the grid, trying to create different networks, you know, like immobile networks, and you know, trying to get one thing or another done. Uh, and while that's going on, uh, the government forces are moving in from the edge of the of this grid and they're represented by six-sided dice and there are two kinds of dice one kind of die is an intelligence center which commands the other units which are you know physically they're smaller dice and the side of the die that's uh, upright shows its power but the further you move these pieces the weaker they get and of course the intelligence center has sort of like a command radius that's equal to you know the power that it's showing so the more you move around the weaker you're going to make yourself and I've always been fascinated and I don't know why by this piece of trivia that if you look at a six-sided die 
the opposite sides of the die, their values always add to 7. So the 6 side is on the opposite of the 1, and the 4 is the opposite of the 3. It always adds up to 7. Why is that? I don't know. It's just the way they make them. Um, so anyway, I decided to make the most of that in this particular game. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, a, there's a few rules in the game that depend on that. So yeah, and anyway, that's something. It's a wheeze I've been working on for the last little while, and um, it just needs a little bit of, of, of testing. Um, so that was the third game, and the fourth game is uh, Virtualia 2 Electric Boogaloo, because, you know, every sequel has to be right. named Electric Boogaloo. Uh, Lucinda Dickey didn't have anything to do with this one, uh, <laughs> nor was I wearing a headband when I designed it. Some people think I might have been wearing a headband and it was too tight. Um, but anyway, it's uh, a game that uh, is sort of a simpler adaptation of a very involved game that I came up with about 10 years ago called Virtualia. And it was a, a, a very involved urban counterinsurgency game that uh, it, it was kind of a development of my Tupamaro game. Um, one thing that was notable about my Tupamaro game was that it didn't feature a physical map of the city. It was a map of uh, social sectors. So it, it didn't represent territory at all. And so this was somewhat like that, in that uh, it uh, the game centers around conflicts for certain neighborhoods within this made-up city. Uh, and the challenge is for both sides to convert the people in each neighborhood to support uh, or at least refrain from opposing their particular viewpoints so that they can have a little bit of freedom of action to move and strong-arm people to, you know, accept them, that kind of thing. Uh, and they're challenged to keep the level of violence down because that will alienate the civilian population. The government has the extra challenge of keeping up an acceptable level of civic infrastructure. So what they call, uh, military analysts call sweat, or sewage, water, electricity, and trash removal. Um, and uh, so there's a, a concept of what you call civic chits uh, in the game. And, you know, there has to be, the government has to repair these kinds of things and just kind of keep a general standard of living, you know, moving towards some of the neighborhoods anyway, um, the ones where their friends live. And uh, the action in the game is driven by card play, and you can play a card in a strategic way or in a tactical way. You play it in a strategic way, uh, you roll a bucket of dice, you know, uh, or a handful of dice uh, based on one metric or another, and it will uh, alter some of the global variables in the game. And if you play it tactically, the card will have a slightly different role and a slightly different process uh, in the conflict over a particular neighborhood uh, that's in the game. So again, that's something that needs a little bit of uh, a little bit of playtesting, but it had some interesting ideas in it. It's fairly simple, and it's played with not with counters, but with wooden blocks. You know, just uh, representing you know static and mobile forces. But there are non-state militias. Uh, in the game, which are, you know, like vigilante groups or private security firms that are on the same side as the government, but they're not under a government's control. Um, so when there's a certain amount of excess violence going on, these groups will start appearing uh, as, you know, neighborhood defense units, if nothing else, but they're very violent and very indiscriminate in their targeting, so they're just going to create more violence, which is, so it feeds that cycle. Also, there are criminal elements that show up. So when 
certain areas lose any kind of police presence and there's a certain amount of violence going on, then criminals will spontaneously appear and move around, that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, that was interesting too. So you were wondering what kind of reaction I'd had about all these things. Uh, everybody's been coming by uh, my table and looking at the China game. And uh, the other three have been mostly sitting in my bag since right, then. Right. I've been telling people about them, but you know nobody's really all that interested. I mean, partly people aren't all that interested in questions of urban insurgency. Um, you know, no certainly not how, as much as you are, Brian. Uh, no, no, right. and you know, and well, you know, what the heck? That's, let your, people, that's your thing, yeah. Absolutely, and you know, let people enjoy things. Yes. Um, and uh, I guess part of it too is uh, the way I kind of prefer. Like when I when I'm working on an idea for a game, I will often put it in some kind of generic, made up city, red versus blue kind of thing, as just as a test bed for the concepts to see how well they work, and then maybe later I'll give it some kind of an historical gloss. Like one of the first games I pub I uh, designed long ago was called Power Play, and it was about uh, uh, coup d'état. Uh, you know, a bunch of people plotting a coup d'etat in the capital city of a made-up country. And it was okay. You know, it was interesting, and it played really quickly, and, you know, that kind of thing. But it wasn't until a year or two ago that I decided to give uh, that game a, kind of a, a, a little bit of an update and put some more variation into it, and most importantly, give it an historic gloss. And so uh, the historical setting I gave it was the coup in Santiago in 1973 that unseated Salvador Allende and uh, ended uh, democracy in, um, in Chile for many years. Um, so that was interesting. You know, that got a little bit more interest, I think, certainly than my generic, you know, made-up setting. We'll take a break here. We have more from Brian Train and part two of this interview scheduled for the next podcast. Mm -hmm.